This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Gold Rock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast. My name is Darren Rockman. I'm a partner at Gold Rock Capital, the 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth families in Israel and around the world. And as you can see, we have upgraded our tech uh, for this episode and from now on. So I've got this big fancy microphone and hopefully as a result, you'll get be, be getting some better sound. And today on the podcast, I am very, very pleased to welcome Robert Staffler, uh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Fintech Capital. And he is coming to us from London. Hi, Robert. How are you? Hi, Darren. So nice to be with you again. Terrific. Well, that's great. Um, Fintech Capital, uh, London-based uh, investment house uh, focusing on private capital management. And last year, I understand that you won Altfi's Alternative Credit Fund Manager of the Year Award. So uh, congratulations Ooh. on that. Thank you. <laughs> well done. So we want to talk about private credit today. And let's start with something very basic. Tell us what is private credit and how is that different from the traditional fixed income or, or, or bond market? Yeah, thanks, Darren. It's great to be here. So uh, private credit, first of all, is credit, i.e. it's debt, not equity, and uh, therefore it's uh, less risky than uh, investments in stocks and shares. By virtue of being private, it describes uh, debt investments that are not listed on a public market. So unlike corporate bonds or government bonds, you have no prospectus and you have no uh, trading facility. And most people associate that with illiquidity. And because conventional wisdom suggests that if it's illiquid, you get a higher premium. So people associate the private debt market with an illiquidity premium. Right. So you should be getting a higher return uh, for the fact that you just can't sell uh, your position uh, that is the, uh, it's the an market. interesting one that's absolutely right you should get a higher return than in the bond market and bond market yields are historically low um, and it's not difficult to get a higher return than that which is available in the in the in the bond market but w- what I find interesting not just in the current market but across sort of uh, across time is that, the notion that private credit is always illiquid is actually only partially true. Um, many investments in private credit are more liquid than one thinks. They're not actually super liquid, but they're more liquid than you might think. Mm-hmm. And conversely, the bond market often has pockets of illiquidity, in particular when you need the bond market most. It's often very hard to get out of positions. And therefore, the notion of an illiquidity premium is an interesting one. I think there's an opportunity here, because if private debt offers a premium over public debt for perceived illiquidity, and the actual illiquidity is not as bad as you might have thought, then there's value. Okay, interesting. So um, we've seen a huge growth in the market for private credit, really, uh, for the past decade, since 2008. How do you explain that? What have been the factors that have generated uh, the, the rapid expansion of this market. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The market has grown. It has also diversified tremendously. And I think the single most uh, important reason for that is the fact that banks have been retrenching. And really in 2008, 2009, we started to see a lending vacuum where existing 
sort of uh, areas and niches of the debt market were no longer populated by the banks. At the same time, many capable individuals had, had left the banks and they, they saw opportunity in this, in this vacuum. Add to that that in private debt, there are many areas that are not heavily regulated. So, and I don't mean owner-occupied mortgages, for example, but there are parts of the market that do not require uh, heavy regulation, certainly in 2008, 2010. Um, that was an opportunity with limited barriers of, uh, of entry. So at the time, you had challenger banks taking on the banks. You had private lending businesses coming out of nowhere with former ex-bankers saying, hey, I can do this uh, for my on my own somehow. Um, insurance companies looked to the market and said, how can we steal market share from the banks who aren't doing what, uh, what they used to be doing? And many insurance companies, for example, set up dedicated uh, debt funds or funded third-party debt funds. And then later private equity houses decided that they should also offer a private debt product to, to grow their um, off-product offering. And then lastly, I think the... The, the first fintech generation was also born exactly in that period. And you look back today, 12, 13 years later, you have a wide variety of, of, of offerings in this private debt space. Okay, so let's pick up on the fintech story. What's been the, the impact of technology uh, on this particular market? How's that changed the way that debt has been given? Yeah, so the first fintech generation really was born just before the financial crisis uh, hit in 2006. Um, uh, there's a UK business called Zopa. It's still around today. Interestingly, Zopa today is a bank, but the first fintech <laughs> business... or the, there's, some, there's some irony for you. Exactly. So the, the first fintech business was a peer-to-peer -peer lending company in the UK, and then suddenly you started seeing sort of peer-to-peer -peer as being the first generation of fintech all around the world in 2007 in Germany, 2007 in, uh, in America. And they were the first to compete with the banks and they all targeted the consumer lending vertical within the wider sort of private debt space. The context at the time was interest rates were super low, banks weren't lending. And so imagine you had a bit of cash in the bank and interest rates dropped like a stone, suddenly you get nothing for it. And you realize that if you get nothing for it, the bank may still be lending to some consumers, but quite restrictively. And therefore, if the other person does get the loan, he would have to pay seven or eight or nine percent. So why am I getting zero? And the bank yeah, is taking yeah. my money onward lending. And it's out of this idea of this intermediation when the triangle was broken, that the, the tech companies came and said, I can take the prerogative away from the banks to be the only person deciding who should and shouldn't get your money. And it is in, 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 in this context that uh, that peer-to-peer -peer was born. And I think that was the first sort of fintech revolution. Okay. I think the bigger fintech revolution or the bigger contribution that fintech has made towards um, uh, changing the landscape in which we finance operates today is not so much in the disintermediation, but rather in customer journey. Basically, the, the fintech companies started with the proposition that banks are clunky, are slow, and they are complicated. And very often, if you think about a bank in 2007, born out of lots of M&A activity, its systems were indeed quite clunky. And it's not hard to design a simple system to compete with 
something that isn't really working particularly well. And I think right. what the fintech revolution has brought to the fore is the importance of servicing your borrower with a smooth and slick customer journey. And more than people flocked away from banks because they were whatever, disenfranchised with banks in the wake of the financial crisis, they started moving towards fintech propositions just because doing so in a hassle-free manner is what millennials are looking for. Right. So I think the biggest um, contribution fintech has made is to simplify the customer journey. Uh, so has that tech revolution only really affected consumer lending or are you seeing the impact of technology in other parts of the private credit world? I think there's a trend towards making finance easily digestible for the consumer of the finance. And that is true on at every level. So think of a fund manager who wants to lend, but he also wants to onboard capital. So he has a capital intake leg and a capital output leg. Both need to be a carefully thought through, ideally tech-enabled experience that makes it easy and hassle-free for both sides of the proposition to understand what do we want from their lives. And that is because, in, in a way, attention spans have shortened. Right. Right. Okay, so if we fast forward now today, and fintechs is a business that really spends a lot of its time on the private credit markets. What opportunities in private credit are you seeing today? Look, Darren, I think we have to accept that our economy is not in great shape. We're in the middle of a massive health crisis. We don't know when it will end, but we do know that the economic crisis that came with it will last longer than the health crisis itself. So we're in this for a while. So I think the context of looking at opportunities in private credit needs to start from the starting point that the key is not to lose money, i.e. capital preservation, which yep. in a way nowadays takes precedence over the maximization of yield and return. I think private credit really belongs into every investor's portfolio, in particular in a market like this. And I think we can, most equity indices are still down 15, 20% year to date. And our investments are up uh, 9, 10% annualized in, in 2020. And that is because what private lenders try to do is to, at least the good ones, they lend through the cycle. They assume that things might turn for the worse and they seek protection even if that does happen. And that's what I think gives private credit an opportunity that does not, that that you only see in the long term or in a bad market. At the moment, we're in a bad market, so I think private credit is a good time. So okay. does that yeah. answer the question? And, and, and now looking out, so what areas do you think are interesting today? And what are the yields that you're seeing available to investors? And maybe what are some of the risks that those particular areas carry with it as we're going through this COVID crisis? I'll start with the second one. The returns available in uh, private credit typically are between five and a half and seven and a half percent a year before fees and costs. Um, we run two funds which both have been performing well ahead of that, more in the 9-10% arena, and actually 2020 is our best year 
and I'm hoping to end in one of our funds well north of 11%. Great. Um, I think where are the opportunities? We are very wary of SME lending in general. Okay. Uh, SME lending is the largest vertical within within our markets, and we have stayed away from that. That's not because we saw COVID coming, but rather because of Brexit. We are quite UK-focused, and in mm -hmm. the UK, we were worried about SME mortality, and we have therefore focused more on asset-backed lending and on specialty finance. Uh, asset-backed lending, there's a lot of real estate. Of the real estate, we were quite active in residential markets in fairly niche mm -hmm. Areas of the residential markets, not your typical bridging and development lending. And I think the key is in a market like this to avoid risk. So how does one avoid risk is we chose to avoid SMEs in asset backed. Make sure your LTV is low, set conservative covenants. What does um, low mean? So in uh, in in. In resi real estate, we would not go above 70%, and many of our competitors do, and we'd okay. rather stay away then. Um, okay. Where we lend against dependable, predictable cash flows, the effective LTV would be lower. So we have right. uh, we have done facilities at, at what other people would perceive to be 40% LTV equivalent and still earn 10%. Okay. Um, we avoid FX exposure. So in our GBP denominated fund, we only do stuff in pounds. Um, we don't take interest rate, rate risk. Everything has a fixed rate. We take asset level security. We make sure we have control in the event of enforcement. Um, we ensure we have proper diversification and where possible, we cross collateralize assets. Okay. So essentially, which brings me back to illiquidity, if people think that the premium is for illiquidity, some of the premium is actually for more complexity. What we do is not so simple. And the baking the transactions, they're in the oven for a bit longer. And therefore, really, it's not so much the illiquidity way that you get a pickup for, but the fact that as a manager, we don't shy away from a bit more complexity. And that's only really worthwhile if the loan lives for longer, which is why we're not so active in bridge lending. Uh, bridge lending, the idea is you do a deal quickly and it lives for short. Our deals are revolving credit facilities. They live for longer, but they also take longer to, to bake in the oven. And right. that's the trade-off. Give, give us an example of some of that complexity, a simple example of complexity, if you can. Yeah, so imagine a, a trader of residential property comes to us and would like a revolving credit facility. So their business would be to buy residential property at a discount to fair market value, whatever their origination business is. But let's say they have one. And let's say they have 30 assets that they have purchased. And now they wish to sell them at a premium to the price that they have bought them at, at which point they would like to reutilize our facility for the next acquisition. So it keeps rolling. Mm -hmm. So yep. effectively, you now have a what we call a forward flow agreement. It could actually be a back book and forward flow agreement if you start with a portfolio that you lend mm -hmm. against. And then, so the forward flow element requires to predict the situations that will arise because you want to give your borrower a, a menu 
of eligibility criteria, which, if met, allows them to utilize the facility. Because on the day you go in, you don't know what the assets, the underlying assets are going to be because they're going to change. So you've got to set some parameters. So the parameters will be uh, asset level parameters. It will be facility level parameters, like how much can you draw in total? What is the loan to cost? How do I make sure that you have aligned interests on every single asset? So all of these things need to be preconceived and then baked into the cake into what is a more complex facility with covenants with concentration caps with eligibility criteria etc and uh, now that that takes a bit of time Mm -hmm. to put together but then you put that together for a three or five year facility you don't have a six months return or a nine months return you actually you worked a bit harder but you reap the rewards for longer sure okay Let's just talk about how COVID has impacted this industry. And uh, maybe we look at peer-to-peer and you can choose one other part of the direct uh, lending market. How has the six months, the last six months, affected um, this whole industry? Uh, Are we seeing people fall over? Are we seeing defaults go up significantly? How's that impacted returns? I think think you're absolutely right. This is a crunch point for a lot of a lot of the funds out there i think the best reference point are probably the listed funds because everybody Mm. has the information for them um and first of all many of them are levered so they have a double risk what if the underlying assets don't perform and what if the senior lender comes in and wishes to enforce and so just to explain that they've taken equity from investors but on top of that they've borrowed money and with that pool they've gone and made loans but of course the money they've borrowed takes precedence exactly now we don't do that we don't have leverage at our funds right um we don't do that we don't take leverage at our funds but those who do are at a higher risk position in a time like this. We said earlier SMEs have not performed particularly well. Obviously, it depends from type of SME to each other. Um, and then there's a third thing for a listed fund, that if my fund is doing well, but the other two funds are not, then the market sort of compare and contrast, and they assume that the, re- that the defaults they've seen there are only a matter of time for them to appear here. And then what that means is many of these funds today trade at a discount to net asset value, and that makes it incredibly difficult for them to raise new money. And um, mm. so I think COVID, you've seen an increase in defaults, you've seen increase in stress. Um, and I think that this is a market where the good managers are those who didn't get ahead of themselves in the good markets that we had previously. So if you think about leveraged loans or um, the loans that um, that private lenders have been giving to private equity portfolio companies, for example, yeah. they've been becoming increasingly aggressive. You know, it's no longer three times EBITDA, it's six, it's seven times EBITDA. The definition of what is an EBITDA was quite loose. Then you had the concept of EBITDA addbacks. And then you had a concept of covenant light. Don't worry, I'm the nice lender. I don't give you. And, (laughs) And I think this is a very telling story that the good lenders in a good market assume the market will turn and the 
the, the aggressive lenders in a good market assume that the good markets will prevail. And that's a very dangerous play. That's more of an equity play. But if I'm anyway limited at a fixed income, I need to take a relatively dim view on the outlook wherever I am. And I think that's where uh, the good lenders are distinguished from the from the not so good lenders. Okay. Your second question was peer-to-peer. Yeah, definitely. You asked about peer-to-peer. In most developed markets, I would argue peer-to-peer no longer really exists in its original form. So if you Mm -hmm. say peer-to-peer is a private individual lending via a tech company to a borrower, whether that be against real estate or SME or... um, If you look at the big and successful peer-to-peer lending companies, the demand on their capital has outstripped the supply of retail money by a multiple already in 2012, 13, 14. And therefore, they had to onboard institutional capital, which gave them more money at a cheaper price point and made it more difficult for retail capital to to remain relevant both in size terms and in cost of capital terms. And therefore, we had a phase sort of between 2012 and 2018, where what used to be peer-to-peer lenders maintained the retail element because they felt it would give their company a higher valuation. I've got thousands of little lenders, et cetera. But I think there comes a point when, you know, as Abraham Lincoln and uh, Bob Marley said, you know, you can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people <laughs> all the times. So I think there came a time when they realized that if they have 99% of their capital intake in the form of institutional capital, then maintaining this token 1% in order to try and convince my future IPO investors that I'm a sexy company, that doesn't really hold true. And interestingly, last week, Lending Club, which was the the big, Mm, obviously the big IPO on NASDAQ in 2012, closed its retail business. In the UK, you've already had that last year because the FCA made uh, platforms having retail capital much more difficult in regulatory terms. So I think the trend has been if a peer-to-peer lending business became big and successful, it will have onboarded institutional capital, at which point it either became a bank or it became almost 100% institutionally funded. And those who still have retail capital, it, it, uh, it's really a small portion. But I don't right. actually think that this is the relevant vantage point for a high net worth investor. Or a, I think as a, as a high net worth investor, I only have to ask myself two questions. Which are the private lending businesses that I have access to? Because if they've closed it for people like me, then it's irrelevant. Sure. And are they good lending businesses? So let's say somebody believes peer-to-peer is rubbish. No alignment of interest, whatever the arguments are. Actually, it doesn't matter whether a lending business is funded via peer-to-peer or institutionally, because as an investor in their platform, I don't actually care where their other money comes from. What I care about is where does my money go? And my money goes into a good place if I'm backing a good lending team with competence and, uh, you know, the ability of handling the complexity and all of that. And my money will go in a bad place if the people don't know what what they're doing. That's really been fantastic, Robert. Thank you. Uh, Just to finish off, what are a couple of tips you would give high net worth investors who are looking at the private credit credit markets? 
how would they find, what are they, should they look for to find competence and high quality people to put their money with? I think investors should look for people of integrity, first and foremost. Uh, people you can trust. I do think people, people do business with people and not entities uh, with entities. I think alignment of interest and skin in the game is very, very important in this space. And that can easily be demonstrated. And I think it's important to compare like for like. What do I mean by that? I tell, tell you a story. An investor comes to me and says, what does your fund return? I say, I'm hoping to get to 10%. He says, oh, and net to me, how much is that? I said, a bit, a bit above eight. He says, yeah, you know what? I recently gave a loan against the property at 60% LTV and I got 9%. Why should I bother with you? I think the answer is, you, the answer is you're not comparing like for like because... Yeah making a single loan and achieving a certain return with that for let's say uh, six months and then doubling that to compute an IRR, that's not really um, a coherent investment strategy because that money will have been sitting around doing nothing for a long time beforehand and probably and will sit around afterwards. <laughs> right, so really right. when we deliver the, you know, a 10% return, what we mean by that is all investors gave us money. We then probably produced a 12% return, but then some of the money was not utilized. And after right. that is accounted for, you get a 10% yeah. return and you don't get it for six months and then you double it because you want to compute an IRR. You actually got it for 365 days. So right. I think the challenge in a market like this where governments are lending for, for free and is to find high quality lending opportunities and to keep my capital deployed, earning a high rate of interest all of for the time. For a long period of time, yeah. And ideally yeah. over five and six years and that is no easy feat and therefore I would challenge high net worth investors who think that they are achieving high returns, I would challenge them to bake in the three months it took them to find this deal, the two months it took them to document this deal, and the six months it took them to redeploy right. half of that money with the rest of that still sitting there. And I think right. that's where we, uh, I have one more tip just as I, as I thought about it, and that okay. is beware of funds that raise a lot of money first and then they are desperate to deploy a lot of money. I don't think that is a good way of managing either capital utilization or risk. And I think the beauty okay. of our investment is because we have a lot of sort of steady backers and we know we can rely on them, we try to operate our funds with very, very high capital utilization, always taking a view that if a sexy deal comes around tomorrow, we will find a way to, to fund it. That is better than running around with this dragging 20 or 25%, which really undermines all of the beautiful work one has done with the remaining sure. 75, 80. Sure. So I would Fantastic. really caution investors from investing money with funds that go out raising 100 million pounds for a first-time fund, and then it takes a long time to deploy. And when they deploy it, they accept risk-reward positions that they wouldn't have accepted had they not been in a desperate deployment okay. urge. Great. Robert, that was terrific. Thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. Um, we really appreciate your time and your wisdom. It's really been a pleasure. Darren, and thank you for your time. It was been, it's been great to be with you. 
Great. And uh, thank you to our producer, Andrew Herman, and to our editor, Isor Schlesinger. Uh, I'm Darren Rockman. Thanks for listening to the Definitely Uncertain podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.